Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ian McNeese. Yes, I played Winston Churchill in The Victory of the Daleks in Doctor Who, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. I know I will. Bye now. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the evolving task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because there's evolution in the story, apparently. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally evolving three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the really Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our Sevinamas fan. Sevinamas? How dare you. Finally, there's our Semi-Novice fan. Oh my god, 123 episodes, and that's the first time I've made that particular mistake. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. I don't know why I made that error when I did. It must be the uh, early onset Alzheimer's, or the evolution, who knows. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't see how, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've opened a Charge Vacuum Emboitment, or CVE, to another universe to store them all. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. God, that was hard to get out. <laughs> and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Somnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton-Welling. Thank you all. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. We also have a Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com 
forward slash Y7KMASPR, and in fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's final season as we discuss Andrew Smith's novelization of Full Circle. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Full Circle, adapted by Andrew Smith from a script that aired from 102580 to 111580, published by Target Books in September 1982. As of this recording in September 2022, this title is out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 123 pages. Now, Full Circle is a story of firsts, some good, some questionable. It's the first story in a triad known as the E-Space Trilogy which was script editor Christopher H. Bidmead's idea of doing mini-story arcs during a season rather than doing one that stretched over an entire season, as they do these days. It's a script written by the youngest writer to ever contribute to the series, and it introduces a companion played by the youngest actor to ever play a companion, as well as someone who would later come out as gay, which hasn't really happened among the series regulars all that often. Fans of the show will already know which of these is the questionable one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm intrigued. They already know what's coming. And I'm guessing that by the way you two are reacting in surprise, yeah, you'll see. When Bidmead took over as script editor, there were very few scripts that were ready to go into production. One of these was Terrence Dick's script, The Vampire Mutations, and we talked about that a long time ago when we did Horror Fang Rock mm-hmm. and how the BBC was doing an adaptation of Dracula that year and they didn't want a vampire story in Doctor Who because they thought it would take away from the seriousness of their Dracula adaptation. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the BBC, such charming twits they can be. But they kept the script. And since that one was closest to being ready to film it was decided that it would be produced first, but aired third. So we'll talk about some of the headaches that that caused next time, since that's the next book we'll be reading. It was aired third? Wait, I'm... Okay. I'm confused. Are we... This is the first written, but the last aired, or the last written, but the no, first no, aired? No, 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 no. I knew that was going to be a problem. Okay. I did um, tell you I was confused. So I thought yep, that. that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Leisure Hive was the very first story of the season. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. All right. Then they produced State of Decay, which is the next story, which will air third in the season. But what about Megloss and then this one? Oh, shit. Right. <laughs> That's my sitcom. But what about Megloss? Oh, what about Megloss? I'm sorry. And then there's Megloss. Just like everybody else, I forgot Meglos. about Megloss because my puny <laughs> mind couldn't understand him. All right, let's try that again. <laughs> Leisure Hive was first. Megloss was second. So that's in production order. Then the next script they had ready to produce was Vampire Mutations, which became State of Decay. So that one comes next in production, but it actually is going to air after this story. So it airs fourth. Yes. Okay. So what's the arc that connects these? It's called the E-Space Trilogy because they're in E-Space now because they went through the charge of vacuum appointment. Okay. So we're going to get three stories in E-Space. We're going to get Full Circle, Stay of Decay, and then Warrior's Gate. Okay. And... The only one of those that was ready to go first was State of Decay. So this is all detouring on their way to try to get to Gallifrey? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And 
obviously that's causing some headaches for us <laughs> because we're we're getting lost with it. <laughs> but it also causes headaches for the production team for many different reasons. That difference in the production order also caused problems for this one, basically because it's based on the only other promising story outline in Bidbead Slush Pile, which is an outline for a story called The Planet That Slept from a writer called Andrew Smith. Smith had been encouraged by previous script editors to submit ideas to the production office. So I'm guessing previous script editors, that means Douglas Adams said you should submit. And probably before him, Anthony Reed, I think, was a script editor for uh, Douglas Adams. So they probably both encouraged him to do this. And Bidmead found this one interesting enough to arrange a meeting with him. At the meeting, he discovered to his shock that Smith was a 17-year-old Doctor Who fan who had always wanted to write for the series. And despite his age, Bidmead was about to give him the opportunity to do so. Despite Smith's age, I mean, not Bidmead's age, because <laughs> But despite older. being a crotchety old feller, he decided to give him a chance. Yeah, the, uh, the English composition instructor in me looked at that sentence and realized, oh, that's a misplaced modifier. Hold out your red pen. Yeah, I would never let my students get away with that. Before a script could be produced, though, there would need to be several changes. One was the addition of story elements to make it the introduction to Bidbead's e-space story arc idea, because obviously that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. Another was revising the story to bring the concept of evolution more to the forefront, which resulted in the title eventually being changed to full circle. And the final change involved introducing the new companion, Adric, who may be one of the most polarizing characters in the entire series of Doctor Who, mostly because of the actor who plays him. Just like Andrew Smith, Matthew Waterhouse was also a fan of the show, having had two letters published in Doctor Who Weekly fairly recently before that, because Doctor Who Weekly just started coming out in 1979, and he was also very young, just 18 years old when he joined the show. He is openly gay, but he was not openly out at the time. He also aspired to act, an aspiration which some fans will cattily claim he never actually achieved, <laughs> and became a clerk, or should I say Clark, at the BBC News Information Office. He then auditioned for and got a part in the BBC production of To Serve Them All My Days, and that led to an audition for the role of the new companion, Adric. One of the other actors to audition for that role, however, was a young man who would later go on to a successful music career with the band Kajagugu under the stage name Lamal. Hmm. I was going to say, so in an alternate universe, we don't get such hits as Too Shy and the theme from The NeverEnding Story, because Lamal makes not. it big on Doctor Who. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I mean, I would think that Lamal is talented enough that he could have done Doctor Who and then gone on to do those other things. That's, that's true. That's not to downplay. Yeah. 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 I, I much prefer to think of a Doctor Who universe out there where Lamal is Adric and people actually like Adric as a result. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot to say about Matthew Waterhouse. So much so that he has a character in the BBC comedy series Little Britain named after him. So... I'd rather bring those things up 
as the stories that these anecdotes are linked to come up. Luckily, there aren't any major anecdotes attached to this particular story. Suffice it to say, this story is his second to be recorded as Adric. Mm. And by this point, he and the other main cast members already did not get along. (laughs) Wow. Waterhouse has, shall we say, a unique ability for being able to put his foot in his mouth, even now, in fact. And it was much worse when he was 18, as you might imagine. Now, in his defense, there are some stories told about him over the years that are misunderstandings of what he was actually saying at the time. Mm. But there have been other things that he has said about his time on the show and the show after he left that have been a little bit controversial, shall we say. So that and people just don't really like Adric because Adric is kind of like the Wesley Crusher of Doctor Who. I would argue that Wesley Crusher was never as bad as some people seem to think. No. No, that's true. I, I think it... Either the character or the actor, I think, were maybe unjustly condemned. Well, I don't know. That character finally does grow, and it's just Will Wheaton himself never quite grows, unfortunately. Certainly not on you. <laughs> no, I think you could say the same about Matthew Waterhouse, even though I like Matthew Waterhouse's person. Some of the, the comments that he made have even gotten on my nerves, but he already by this point had gotten on Tom Baker's nerves, and he had very definitely gotten on Lala Ward's nerves. Well, so to go back to Will Wheaton and Wesley Crusher, I feel like people held against the character and the actor the first season where a lot of characters were written very badly. Yeah. And they came back the next season with like, Orphan and Riker are basically different characters, mm-hmm. essentially, and things were written differently, but everyone still held season one against Wesley. But here we're decades into Doctor Who. So do you think that Adric was originally written badly and improved or was never written badly or was written badly throughout? I think that the writing on Adric, in fact, that's the very next thing I was going to bring up. It got confused early on because... Adric's inclusion in this story meant that Andrew Smith had to come up with a way of matching the characterization to the one that Terrence Dix had established in his script. And that was based on producer John Nathan Turner's original idea for the character of Adric to be more of an artful dodger type. Hmm. Okay. That's part of the reason why we get that business with him uh, stealing the image translator. He's meant to be something of a thief. So does he in your opinion, improve over the episodes as they sort of settle into a characterization or not really? No, uh, no. I, I hate to say it, but Andrew Smith actually writes him the strongest mm. of just about anybody. There are later stories where he has a good scene here and there, but as you're going to see, the dynamic with Adric suffers a bit from the same dynamics that are causing the show to change and are causing Tom Baker to want to leave. As a matter of fact, by the time the story aired, Tom Baker had made that decision. Actually, by the time the story was made, he had made that decision. He had already announced that he was going. So that kind of tells you what was going on behind the scenes. Needless to say, there are elements of the original characterization of Adric in the script. 
But apart from his brief foray into crime with the Outlers and this one, that aspect of his character doesn't emerge much after this. It comes up every once in a while. But yeah, there's just confused characterization going on from the start. And in Matthew Waterhouse's defense, he's an 18-year-old who's suddenly been thrust into a lead role in his favorite TV show. And he plays him one way in one story, and suddenly the characterization changes. And then another writer comes in, and it's slightly different. And yeah, it's understandable. Plus, his co-stars do not like him. I think that's a lot of it. Now, listeners, I'm not going to really defend Adric much more than that. (laughs) But... I think you'll find once we get to the discussion of this book that Adric comes off a lot better on the page than he does on screen. Andrew Smith submitted more outlines to the show, but never ended up being commissioned again. And he eventually left television writing to become a police officer. Much later, however, he would become a highly prolific writer for the Big Finish range. And he has so far written 41 scripts. Mm. Mm. for the company's various ranges, including four Fourth Doctor adventures. That's a lot of scripts. It really is. It's not nearly as many as some of the Big Finish writers, but he has definitely written more scripts than he ever did for the original series, and some of them have been really quite good. So we need a dramatic reading of the back cover. Dalton, would you mind doing the honors on this one? Mm, Sure. Romana has been recalled to Gallifrey by the Time Lords, a summons that cannot be ignored, despite her extreme reluctance to give up the freedom and excitement life as the Doctor's companion has brought. The Time Traveler's course is set. The flight path is clear. Estimated time of arrival on Gallifrey is in 32 minutes. Then the unexpected happens. The full significance of their temporary loss of control over the TARDIS is only gradually brought home to the Doctor. For it is not on Gallifrey that they land, but on the terror planet Alzarius, and at a time when the legendary Mistfall comes again, when the giant scaly creatures that inhabit the planet's swamps leave the marshes and go on the rampage, leaving a trail of death and destruction in their wake. Flight Plath. Hmm? Like Sylvia Plath? What? (laughs) You, You said Flight Plath. (laughs) where is that at you were saying flight path but you said flight path okay if you say i did (laughs) i I, you did i was amused i wasn't giving you a hard time it was just like (laughs) i think think you were giving him a hard time oh for heaven's sake (laughs) don't never mispronounces anything so i was i was amused by it i'll hear it when i edit (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you you will. And now you have to leave it in because I've said so much about it, unless you cut all of this, which you're welcome to do, no, would, to be honest. I would, but... I would never. <laughs> no, I thought it was cute. That's why I brought it okay. up. Okay. <laughs> I was trying not to laugh during, but hey. You could. I can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, no. The Terror Planet Alzarius, that's taken directly from the text of the book. So at least we have somebody writing the back cover text who's actually read part of it this time, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So Dalton, what was your first impression of this one when you got it? Reading that description, I just immediately thought of the creature from the Black Lagoon, also with the lovely illustration we have on the cover. I think one of the few that we have that don't have the doctor on them. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. 
I just immediately kind of was brought into this horror side of sci-fi, a little darker, a little more grim, which immediately starting in the prologue was right there on the page. So I was like, okay, this one's going to be rough. <laughs> yeah, that prologue is like something that Ian Martyr would write, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean rough like as in the story is going to be gritty and difficult. Not, I'm not going to like it. <laughs> oh, oh, got, oh, I see. Gotcha. D- distinction in rough because I have described things as rough as being bad too. But this one was rough in a good way. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay, okay. Was not sure about that, but now I am. And Allison, what was your first impression when you got the book? I was trying to figure out if there was supposed to be a sort of optical illusion on the cover of a second face. Oh! Because the first thing I saw was the creature looked less menacing than disappointed and exasperated. (laughs) And, you know, why am I still doing this? Why do they always walk into the swamp to get murdered? What is your problem? But then it looks like they're sort of nipples slash eyes and then sort of a gonzo nose and a smile that I think is supposed to be a stomach crease. Yeah. And that's actually quite sinister. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out actually if it was supposed to be, if that was intentional or, or accidental. Uh, I liked the, the fact that it was sort of monochromatic. Oh, was it monochromatic for you? I, well, no, no, it's not black and white. It's just sort of all sort of a beige, misty earth tone. Oh, I liked, yeah. I liked the color design. Which is interesting given that it actually does make the marsh creatures look a bit better than they do on screen. I mean, obviously they're rubber suits mm-hmm. because they have to be. They're going to be underwater and all that. But. And I forgot the back cover as soon as I was finished reading it. It left zero <laughs> impression, positive or negative. Goodness. Okay. But then the prologue did because I don't think that like a Terrence Dix prologue has ever contained the phrase death yell. Or death yells in the very first sentence. <laughs> Typically, if there's a prologue, someone's going to not survive it. Or they're going to witness people not surviving it. But mm-hmm. this was, yeah, this was a, a pretty dark start. Yeah, especially since our first point of view character is Lorenzo. And the very last line that refers to him is, The blackness came and Lorenzo's last thoughts in life were that he was going to survive the crash after all. Yeah. Yeah. That is the most tragic line. And it's amazing that when you think this line was written by a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my God, that's like Mary Shelley uh, levels of prodigy there. It starts off with such confidence and it continues that confidence all the way through. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm really... Well, obviously, I'm getting ahead of myself quite a bit, but that's my first impression. Obviously, my first impression of the story itself is like, oh, rubber monsters and apparently a group of people in diaphanous gowns who eat a lot of watermelons. So is the prologue in the episode? It is not. Not a single bit of it. It just starts with the scene with the doctor and Romana? It does. Because it's a major plot point whether or not the story of the myths and the Marshmen will turn out to be a myth, as several characters assert that it probably is. Yes. Or, like, and if so, is it government propaganda? Is it an exaggerated folk tale? Is it real? And we know immediately that it's real and coming. Yeah. And I was thinking that might actually be quite different than the episode. Well, it also cleared up something that I hate to admit this. I really do. For years, 
and I mean years, I misunderstood the big reveal of the story. I'm pretty sure I misunderstand it now. Okay. Well, the big reveal of the story, and for anyone listening at home who hasn't watched it or hasn't read it, plug your ears now, because I'm about to give it away, but we're going to talk about it anyway, so who the fuck cares? The spiders, the marshmen, and the Alzarians are all the same species. They're on different evolutionary stages of that species. That the Pteridonians who land at the very beginning of the story are all wiped out by the marshmen. But the marshmen evolve to become creatures that are like the Pteridonians because they landed on Alzarius. And we're told at the end it's because the Pteridonians have a form best adapted to this environment, but we do not see them surviving in this environment. We see them being wiped out immediately, apparently. Well, there are indications that if they don't get wiped out each time Mistfall comes, something else in the evolutionary chain happens to keep it going. But eventually, either the spiders will evolve fully into marshmen and the marshmen will eventually come and wipe out whoever is in the Starliner and the whole thing will happen all over again. It sounds like there's only been one cycle, though. See, this is what I fundamentally am not getting. Mistfall is every 50 years, but this seems to be a cycle that's happened once, or is the whole thing happen every 50 years? It sounds like the spiders and the marshmen emerge every 50 years, but whether or not they get as far as they do is a different question. I, I think this is the way I'm understanding it now that it's this particular mistfall that the Marshmen have finally evolved to the point where they could probably destroy everybody in the Starliner and take over for them the same way that their distant ancestors did to the Pteridonians who originally landed there. But are they, every 50 years, emerging from their isolated society and taking an interest in the Starliner? I think so. And the quote, Pteridonians, end quote, or are they dormant? Are they the new brood hatching? I I feel Mm -hmm. quite stupid reading. Well, that's the thing. It's intentional because the deciders have, well, the first decider has kept this knowledge from everybody, including his fellow deciders, as it turns out. I thought you were going to say including his audience. No, no. Though, in my case, it might as well have been the case, because since you don't have that prologue in the original story, my interpretation of the story was always the Pteridonians crash on Alzarius. There's no such thing yet as marshmen or spiders or whatever, and I don't know why I came up with this notion, but somehow they infect the biosphere with their own evolutionary cycle but of course now that makes no damn sense at all this makes a lot more sense especially of that title oh god so it's a a little embarrassing that i didn't get it all these years but i think where you're getting stuck with it allison is this idea that if mistfall happens every 50 years are the alzarians in danger of being replaced by the Marshmen every 50 years? And the answer is probably not. Well, because the Mistfall is a sort of astrological event, right? Like where they are in their orbit, the planet is cooler because it's further away from the sun. Yeah. 
and this stimulates the swamp things yes to growl with them yes i guess this is what i'm failing to understand is what exactly is happening every 50 years in terms of whether the marshmen are behaving differently or they're only emerging and being active every 50 years i think they're only coming out and being active every 50 years but are they like cicadas yeah they're dormant during that time yeah okay well because they even talk about beetles mm-hmm. yeah there's, there's the illusion <laughs> 50 years out of date like oh you know who i love is the no beetles. that's not that <laughs> sort of beetles not yet. the band <laughs> oh, but there, there's an allusion to like the bug beetle and they kind of make that distinction there and yeah i took it as the humanoids not humans, which he calls them so many times and then annoyed me. Yeah. Um, the humanoids. <laughs> you are the human annoyed. <laughs> they have experienced the Marshmen every 50 years, but I mean, they're in this giant ship that even in the story, they're able to close off and keep themselves sealed in and safe from the Marshmen. So it seems that they're able to live in there long enough for the Marshmen to go back dormant finish whatever period they need to to go back into the marshes but of course some of the people aren't going to be on the ship they're going to get killed they're going to experience it so that makes the myth live on but it's, it's just going over and over and over again yeah and i think what's also happening during this mistfall that hasn't happened in previous ones is that they're finding evidence of the spiders because Dexter finds the eggs in the marsh fruit that they all eat. Which is weird because that means they're kind of eating their own ancestors. But Oh, so is that maybe like the triggering event that's only happened once before? Maybe they sync up with the spider cycle? I think so. Okay. I, I think so. Okay, so now they're ready to make this leap in intelligence. Yeah. I just took okay. that as them realizing that was a sign that the marshmen were going to come back. Oh, yeah, you're right. It, is, it does happen every time. Yeah. It's it's not anything different this time. It's just that they've realized that, okay, if we see the spider eggs in the fruit, that means we're getting to the time of the planet being affected by this other planet. So then tectonic masses are going to create gas that are going to make the marshmen come out of dormancy. So I'm sorry I'm harping on this. Um <laughs> So what causes the evolutionary split where some of the Marshmen evolve into this very different humanoid faux-Teradonian species that's super into eugenics and calipers? <laughs> and then some of them remain nudist hippies in the swamp. I don't know. That's just it. It's never clarified. Yeah, that's that's something that's never stated. I like to think that at some point they did invade the ship they killed all the Terradonians. yes and then somehow they stayed on land ground their bones to make their bread and well they stayed on land and a number of the marshmen went back to the marshes and mm. yeah and they basically from there that was the split mm -hmm. oh so maybe the original invaders were exposed to sort of this tree of knowledge yeah yeah and stayed on land, started breathing the air because they do have that rapid adaptation, which the humanoid Alzarians also have because of the fast healing. I guess I've just explained what I do and do not like about the book. It's, I thought the atmospherics were terrific. 
and I was interested in the story, but I wasn't ever convinced that it was going to make any sense either as a reveal at the end. But I was rooting for it to make sense. I appreciate it a lot more as a book because obviously the story confused me <laughs> and probably more than it should have. But yeah, it's one of those that if you poke at it a little too long, even with somebody who's into quote unquote hard science like Bidmeat is, it still doesn't quite hold up to the concept unless it's some sort of rapid evolution and it sounds like it might be but then you like does that happen every 50 years or is it just when the marshmen come out so it's not 40 generations 4,000 generations as they point out at one point mm -hmm. i yeah. think it's something too that given how short the story is it is going to be kind of explained in a quick and fast way if this book was two or three times longer then of course he could get into the actual theories of the evolutions and we would get a you know a better picture of how it played out yeah i mean it definitely creates an impression that there is a there there to discover mm -hmm. i'm not sure if there is but it creates the impression that mm -hmm. there is yeah because not everything is revealed by the end, but the doctor has pretty much figured out, oh, this is what's going on, and they don't know it because there's been this cover-up for generations, which uh, I don't know that even the cover-up makes sense. Why would they necessarily be all that frightened of anybody knowing the truth, that they evolved from these same creatures that rise out of the swamps and attack them every so often? or the spiders that they're probably likely to smash whenever they see them. I mean, I assumed that the concealed secret was that the Pterodonians are not really Pterodonians, that they're the descendants of the spiders yes. and the marshmen. But then I thought maybe the secret was, we don't know how to fly the ship. We only know how to do maintenance. Yeah, well, that actually is the other reveal. That's part of it. Yeah. But I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be part of what only the first decider knows. It is. The first decider basically knows both of those secrets. Do we all owe an apology to George W. Bush? For what? Making fun of him for calling himself a decider. Oh, <laughs> well, no, we don't owe him any apologies. We do owe him apologies for thinking that he would be the worst president in history. But yeah, that's beside the point. I wonder, too, if like part of the secret of not letting the populace know that the marshmen are their ancestors as a way to other them as a way to keep them from empathizing with them oh yeah that does make mm. sense because the marsh child obviously is not wanting to kill or maim mm -hmm. anybody it's no. just as frightened as any child would be and it would be pretty easy to empathize with yeah that was a very dark part of the story that i was I, I was surprised that they actually went that dark in this particular program and was this 1980? Yeah. You mean Dexter going all Joseph Mengele on the Marsh yes, Child? Yes, well, and actually having the, the Marsh Child not survive. Yeah. Because for a while it looked like Dexter might actually turn out to be kind of like our guy, and then it obviously no. turned pretty quickly to Edric. But I, yes, I didn't expect there to actually be that sort of bloodshed mm -hmm. with the child character. It's much worse on the page. <laughs> I mean, it still happens in the televised story, and it's still very affecting. I would say it was it was effective here. Yeah. It's much darker than people give it credit for being, which is something I appreciate about the novelization. 
there's very little to laugh at in this, even though he does bring some of the humor back in that apparently Bidmead and John Nathan Turner made him take out of the script. Well, as opposed to, you know, Tylus, who we immediately knew upon reading the description wasn't going to make it through to the end of the story. Yeah. Those kinds of characters drop left and right in these kinds of stories. Having the Marsh Child not survive at all was different. Well, something else I give Andrew Smith credit for is the fact that unlike just about any other writer for Doctor Who who doesn't bother naming those characters that you know are going to drop off, he names all of them. Oh, God, yeah. Yes, I found it quite challenging (laughs) to keep up with them. I have some notes, yeah. Yeah, that's part of the reason why you don't do it. It's because it's like, oh, should I know this person's name? Oh, no, they're already dead. (laughs) But he not only gives them names, he also does something that he does not do on screen, which is he gives them surnames. For all you know, they're just the planet of the mana names. And in fact, Adric and his brother Vosh still don't have names by the end of it, but that's fine. You don't really need to know that Adric's name is something like Johansson or something. <laughs> they do have surnames, though, and their surnames are very appropriate to the rest of the name that they have. But yeah, that's something that I really have to give him props for. I was somewhat annoyed by it because then the people are thereafter referred to by just one name and I didn't know if it was going to go with the first one or the second one. It depends mm, on the character. Yeah, so. I, I could see that. Yeah, if it's an older character like one of the deciders, they're going to go by the last name. But if it's one of the youngsters like the Outlers, then it's going to go by the first. I assume anyway. That would explain Kira because Kira is Logan's daughter and she's only ever referred to as Kira. I'm glad you said his name because I kept reading it as login and I'm like that. (laughs) I was like, that is not right. I know it's Logan, but my brain keeps saying login. Yes. Well, the first time that she's named, I think I have this in my mind is Kira Logan. (laughs) Kira Logan. (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. Which is, I mean, Kira is a name, so I misapprehended. I do have to wonder if, you know, some of them are in jokes for technical terms from 1980 that are still with us but it does have that moment doesn't it but if you've ever only watched the tv story and come to think of it this is something that i didn't realize until i read this book for the podcast i had never read this novelization before Hmm. it's my first time and i'm at that age where i can't say that about much anymore yes i've had my cherry popped I have read Full Circle for the first time. Have you ever walked around with canine's head on a stick? (laughs) Or carried under your arm jauntily? Not recently, no. How did that go over with the kids at the time, I wondered? Oh, God. Yeah, that had to be. Seems a little gratuitous. (laughs) Well, bear in mind that this is still at that time that John Nathan Turner is trying to divest Doctor Who of everything old. And he's never liked K-9 and is only using K-9 very minimally. K-9 is probably only going to get used really well in the next script. Because Terrence Dix also doesn't like K-9, but he at least knows how well K-9 plays with the punters. Whereas Andrew Smith was told specifically, yeah, try to sideline K-9 as much as you can, please. And he did. That's a pretty bold move to decapitate him and then have his head on a stick 
Oh, I know. I was going to say, he doesn't write K-9 out. He just visits a different violence on him <laughs> each, yes. each story. And not only that, but to get Romana possessed, infected, whatever happens to her, that is scary. And Lala Ward, having cut her teeth, no pun intended, having one of her first roles be an early hammer horror movie from the early 70s called Vampire Circus, she can play villainous really well. So what do we think about Romana's characterization early on when she thinks she's headed directly to Gallifrey and her thoughts about how she's not ready for her adventures to be over? I think, what, what does she say? Something like, I'm not ready to stop learning th- new things. Yeah. Or I want to keep learning things. I feel like that echoes a lot of the sentiment that companions in the newer series have that we haven't really seen out of companions in classic Who. Like a lot, uh, when a lot of the companions leave, I mean, there's a little bit of that, but overall, we've had companions that leave very quickly, unexpectedly, or just they're done and they're over it. This is like the first time we've really seen someone be like, but I don't want to leave. Like, I'm having fun with this. Yes, they choose to leave. They have a romance or a new adventure or mission yeah. or job or something like that lined up. And there's this, uh, let me see if I can find it. Or they're weary of adventures that have so much death there it is um this little paragraph says would you see him again after gallifrey the face was at once immensely cheerful and yet tinged with the sadness of one who has known too many people for too short a time you pulled that right out of my notes didn't you <laughs> no i mean you, ha- you have it in the notes but i i had that too because again like that's one of the first instances we really have of like yeah the doctor has seen and dealt with so many people in his time and so far we've had like little tinges of like what that's like for him but this is i feel like one of the first times we really get to see that through someone else's eyes and their own understanding of how difficult his existence has been so dalton what did you think of the explicit parallel that was drawn between romana and adric about them having both been elites with a capital E or a lowercase e who left very bright had all these awards and left for other things did you think that was borne out in the story or not I didn't think about it until you just said it (laughs) well I only say that because it's not something I'm I'm reading in we're explicitly told that Mm -hmm. Adric echoes Romana's thoughts about leaving as he starts stalking off into the shrubberies to find the outlers yeah, that's true. In my mind, the outlet who just like behind a hedgerow, <laughs> duck right out of sight. Well, they're up in a cave that looks over the Starliner. But yes, apart from that, yes. I had not noticed that parallel either. So that's, again, something that Andrew Smith is doing really brilliantly. It's not the sort of deep characterization we get for companion characters unless we're in the new adventures in the 90s or the missing adventures also from the 90s when we get into fan writers or people who started as fans and became professional writers who have been thinking about these questions a lot and i think that's the key thing i think it's that andrew smith's a fan he has always loved this show he does what any fan of this show would do, which is basically identify with one of the companions and think, what would it be like if I were in that position? And he's able to nail it. 
And he absolutely does it with Romana. And he also, in, in that same first chapter, that's why I was so surprised Dalton. the very first note I had for the first chapter was that quote and how much I adore it, that the doctor's emotions, his reactions to her having to leave are also extremely complex. He's awkward. He doesn't know quite how to handle this because on the one hand, he's lost so many people before. He doesn't want her to go on. On the other hand, she reminds him, well, you fought them once. And he said, yeah, I lost that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they won. So, and it's so bleak the way that line is delivered on screen that it's one of those issues where you realize the doctor is is not trying to be deliberately mean when he's trying to say, oh, snap out of it. He just really doesn't know how to handle it because this is one of the first times he's ever had to deal with a companion knowing ahead of time that they were going to leave and not wanting to do it. And he's like, uh, I don't want them to leave either, but it's also the Time Lords and God, that's just going to... HR is going to pitch a fit if I try to keep this one along. Yeah, it's very much the embodiment of keep calm and carry on. Yeah, somewhat it is. And it's done really well on the page, I think. Of course, now she doesn't have to think about it for a while. (laughs) At least two more stories, if not more. Because we don't know when she's leaving. Yet. What else do we want to say about this? I mean, there's quite a bit, and we've been talking for a while already, but... (laughs) I feel like this happens when there are books we like. (laughs) Yeah, I've got plenty of notes, and they're all, this is good, this is good, this is good. Uh, Some of them, for the listeners who have only seen the televised story, who may not be aware of just how good this book is, I mentioned earlier that Andrew Smith appears to have put back some of the humor, Mm -hmm. because the fourth Doctor gets to be the fourth Doctor in a lovely way. At one point, he he has a pun about government by myth management. And I love that line. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm not bringing that one up. I already have a lisp. <laughs> uh-huh. It's not in the TV story. Anytime the doctor says anything really funny in this book, it's actually not on the screen because they're trying very hard to keep all of those funny lines out of Tom Baker's mouth, unfortunately. He has a few, but not many. But I feel like they're they're sprinkled in in the right places. It's not like some of the stories we've had in the past where it's like the whole thing is just balls to the wall, just zany, kooky doctor. This one has like bits of it where (laughs) it it loosens some of the weight of the story. Yes. Sorry, I was just thinking werewolf or mitzvah, (laughs) kooky. Hair. Boys becoming men and becoming wolves. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Oh, God. Can you imagine the bris? Oh, good. oh God. That would be. How would you ever keep your knives clean? You'd always be getting fur in them. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, this is terrible. I don't want to think about this. Oh, there are some lines that. Andrew Smith is just marvelous when it comes to prose, period. And he likes doing these lovely little puns, like the knife which appeared suddenly at her throat cut short her conversation and threatened to cut a good deal more. (laughs) And I love that. And probably the weirdest line out of context ever, 
he again studied the flavor of the moisture from his hair. Hmm. Yeah, what what the hell? <laughs> and yet it communicated. Yeah. Yes. In in context, that line makes perfect sense. But if you were to say that to anybody else, you'd be like, he did what now? <laughs> he tasted his own hair and thought, oh, what is that? What on earth could that be? <laughs> I did like how the deciders were ultimately very indecisive. Yes. How it was brought up that in moments where they actually have to make big decisions and they're actually confronted with a crisis, they don't know what to do. They, they kind of are frozen with fear. Yeah. Well, I took it to mean that previously there really only was one decider once Drace was gone. Mm-hmm. No one else had this lifetime of knowledge of what was actually going on. Right. And then when Nefred steps into that position, he finds out the secret. But there's something in those system files that says, do not tell the other deciders about this. That maybe in usual times, Drace would have had a successor in mind or, or something like that. Someone whom he revealed the information to earlier. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think it too, it just kind of, I brought that as like a parallel to real world, real society of where, you know, people being in positions of power that they're not actually suited for, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, you know, they're given more responsibility, not to name any names. No, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of brought that up for me. It's just like, oh yeah, these, these guys have no idea what they're doing. They, they have no idea how to handle anything like this. Um, even though they have all the tools in front of them to help. Yeah, and if you think about it, they don't have all the tools in front of them to help. They have everything except for that one page telling them how to actually pilot the ship or to get it into flight. And every time we get a decider who gets into that position and sees the folder that is clearly marked classified and can read it and knows that he shouldn't take it home lest other eyes be clapped upon it, Sorry, there was me naming names. But whenever a decider finds this out, they think, oh, I thought that there was some secret that would let us know how to save ourselves, but we're fucked. And that's the main reason why no decider has ever told anybody else about this, because there would be panic. Because their entire culture is based on this idea of eventually returning to Pterodon, not knowing that as Nefred puts it before he dies, we've never been there. I thought they could have gone in two or three different directions, and I thought there was some genuine suspense there. They could have tried to build some kind of bridge to the marsh. <laughs> I just realized how, <laughs> I didn't think that sentence through before I began it. They could have tried to emigrate to Pterodon. Instead, they set out to, I, I took it as, find a, a different, a third place or a fourth place, really. I, I was a little surprised that they made zero effort to try to communicate with the Marshmen who they were to one another. Well, how would you go about doing it, though? They're empathic. The Marshmen, I thought, were empathic. They are, and come to think of it, this is something that's a bit of a missed opportunity that is touched on in the book, and you don't even get it at all in the TV version. When Romana is possessed, and it's clear that after she comes out of it, she still has a connection to them and could be that bridge. 
and she considers it and then decides not to. And you're like, wait, what? Why? I mean, the way things later work out, it is possible that she, I don't know, I'll bring that up again when we get to a story where I, I think it'll be appropriate to do so, but I'm not sure whether Andrew Smith was putting that in so that he could kind of link this to the other stories a bit more, or whether it was a case of, yeah, it's just not going to do any good, because... They'll adapt, yes, but they still have this kind of bloodlust and want to kill the humanoids that are in the ship. Well, I forget if it wasn't described as bloodlust so much as, I'm sorry, I should have this in my notes, something like, why does it that beauty requires death or protection of beauty requires killing? I'm trying to mm. find mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's at the end. The Marsh leader rejoined the mind share with his fellows and put the question to them. Why does the maintaining of beauty always have to require the taking of life? It is so very sad. No mind could answer the question. That's so, right. I really thought they were setting up some kind of, I apologize in advance, meeting of the minds. Yeah. Marshalling of, uh, I'll show myself out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then sort of we have a throwing up of hands and saying, oh, well, I guess we can't chat. I guess we should leave. Yeah. Well, Again, you don't really get much of a sense of that on screen. You get the sense that they're intelligent, but not quite to that degree. Even I was surprised by that bit. I was like, wait, what? Really? They have that much ability to reason? Yeah, there should have been something that could have come of it. The scene where Varsh throws his bag at them. Yes. And it says, you know, the marshmen lose complete interest in the young people and they start, you know, examining the objects in front of them. They start they're very curious. And then there's also the scene with the doctor with the, the oxygen tanks where he yes. picks one up and they immediately pick them up too. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. they are able to learn and there's something, you know, the wheels are turning there. So, yeah, I kind of wanted there to be some kind of evolution not to use that word (laughs) yeah (laughs) on that level of like okay maybe we don't have to come kill these people we can coexist because the people on the ship aren't going and like hunting the marshmen down no no they're not they're they're not openly antagonistic towards them no i mean it's kind of like the marshmen every 50 years wake up hangry yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's essentially it i think and there's some sort of impulse for them to go to the Starliner because they've always gone to the Starliner before, something like that. But there was a first time because they existed before the Starliner. Yes, yes. There is some sort of loop that they are caught in as mm-hmm. well. So what was their life cycle like before the Starliner? They wake up and do what? That may be why they split off the way they do, because the pseudo- Pteridonians are going to leave the planet, but the Marshmen who are left behind have this glimmer of the start of intelligent evolution towards that humanoid form they're eventually going to take, and they'll be a completely different culture as a result of it. It makes me wonder, yeah, if like where the ship crashed was like a breeding ground. Mm. Something like that could have totally cleared up all of this speculation we're having of like, what what is going on here? Right. Because even too, when the Marshmen end up in the cave overlooking the ship, he's kind of describing like where the ship is as something special or something special about them being up in the cave mm-hmm. overlooking this valley. 
Yeah, that it means something to them somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it's just, that's where the Starliner came down when their ancestors originally destroyed it. That's where they go on summer vacation and there's tourists here now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That means that the uh, Pseudo-Terradonians are the townies. No, no, they're the townies and the uh, <laughs> Pseudo-Terradonians are the tourists. There we go. <laughs> Oh, God, what a thought. Interesting, the writer's idea that upon absorbing the knowledge from the ship, the original Marshmen who defeated and killed off the original Terradonians absorbed, we're not told it's a military ship explicitly, but what they absorbed was an extremely hierarchical conception of what society is, like placement testing from birth (laughs) only three decision makers and there's definitely a senior one extremely limited access to the ultimate knowledge and i thought maybe it was suggested that sort of like a star trek original series i'm talking about star trek too much of a a sort of a a planet that bases their entire culture off a super eight reel (laughs) 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 a snapshot of earth culture Mm -hmm. more so than a natural evolution But at the same time, it doesn't seem to show any evolution in these supposedly 4,000 generations since then, other than the outlers, these sort of occasional dissidents. And even that's not so much secondary evolution, that's just kids being kids, or at least that's the way it's described. Yeah, when it was initially put in there, I thought, oh, there's going to be like a whole secondary colony. Yeah. Of people that mm-hmm. live away from the ship. And it's like, no, this is just like a group of kids that hang out under the overpass and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> yes. yes. We're, I think we're going for another Sabatine retread, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which they could have done, but no. <laughs> oh, wow. There is a lot to talk about here. There's a lot going on. And I'm really fascinated by it, especially given that uh, the televised story I'm okay with, but it hasn't nearly been as interesting to me as this book has been. And we haven't even scratched the surface of the stuff like Romana saying damn, which I never thought I would see in a Doctor Who novelization, but there you go. Yes. And the Doctor making the joke about the light bill, <laughs> <laughs> which is also not on screen. And there's even a mention in that same chapter, and I'm just looking at notes for one chapter. We had a writer address that there is a gap between the outer doors of the TARDIS and the inner doors. Mm-hmm. That there's a void. Stepping into the void, Romana found the blue doors and opened them very slowly. So there is a void between those, and that's not often seen on screen. In fact, sometimes it's outright ignored. And just little bits. And there's so many of those little bits, and some of them are vast improvements on what we get on screen i did enjoy the way that the spiders were described Mm. (laughs) there are two specific sentences that i have one is they traveled quickly on their eight legs a seething clattering mass of malevolence (laughs) and then the end of chapter six there's the line a spider scuttled relentlessly towards her clambering onto her body until they covered her entirely an undulating mass of black animosity (laughs) (laughs) it's like that is a wonderful way to describe spiders like especially the way they're acting like pack animals Mm -hmm. 
Well, these are downright aggressive ones because they're specifically, I guess, trying to infect any humanoids they find with a toxin. I'm not quite sure why, but... <laughs> when he's describing the spider crawling on Romana's face, oh, I 100% got face sucker. I yeah. got alien from that. And it's like, that is horrible. Yeah. Oh, the shot itself is terrifying. And it's very brief, but it's one of those that just lives in your memory because it's, you know, this spider prop jumping on Lala Ward's face. And they do it by the way the BBC always does these things, by putting it on Laserdisc and then running it backwards. So it's done, you know, in reverse order. Yeah. And it is frightening for that because it's got this unreal quality to it. And then having the spiders all over, even though at that point they're all, you know, rubber. Yeah. Yeah. Tony disappointed that actual giant spiders were not unleashed on the cast. (laughs) Kind of. At that point, I'm sure that Lala Ward would have just crowed if they'd gone after Matthew Waterhouse, but yeah. (laughs) Did she uh, personally not care for him? Well, I don't know if this, uh, this happened during the filming of this story or the next one, but he got under her skin very quickly by... At one point, they, I I don't know whether this was camera rehearsal or whether it was during the actual filming, but they were in costume. The wardrobe department lady came and said, okay, we need to get you out of costume so that you can go to lunch. And he essentially said, no, 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 there's no need for me to do that. I, I just want to go to lunch. I'll be fine with the costume. And they got into a set too. And I guess he snapped at her, the wardrobe lady. And Lala Ward overheard this and essentially said, listen, you little shit. You do not talk to her like that. You do not disrespect this crew. And you do everything that they tell you to do. And yeah, she didn't like him at all after that. Mm. Just wait. Yeah, there are so many stories to tell there. But yeah, that appears to be it. Whereas... It's never really been said why Tom Baker didn't care for him, except that Tom Baker really didn't care for many of his co-stars by this point. Just over it. Yeah, this precocious little boy who is going to stay in the show, presumably after Tom Baker leaves. Yeah, that may be it. Trying to figure out if the podcast itself is a type D oligarchy where of the three deciders, you're the the prime decider, and only you have the knowledge. (laughs) Yes, I know the secrets. Well, you have the access codes. I know the access codes are the fact that there aren't any and we'll never be able to get off this planet ever. We don't actually know how to pilot the ship. Yeah, exactly. When it comes down to that. Oh, Lord. One last thing for me. Well, I guess two things, but it's in the, it's the same part. When the doctor's been taken to meet with the deciders, And it says, it is usually a very effective psychological ploy to leave someone you wish to feel inferior standing in total darkness for a period of time. It instills in most people a sense of vulnerability and paranoia. If you listened to that final reminder, the doctor pointed out, and paid the bill, this never would have happened. So you mentioned that (laughs) earlier, but that's, yeah, the the bit about being in the dark. And then I love directly after that him describing the doctor basically talking in this dark room as a means to understand its dimensions and understand the space that he's in, even without 
being able to see it. Yeah, and I do want to point that out real quick. The way Andrew Smith writes the fourth doctor, the fourth doctor is every bit the genius that we've always thought he was. That he's always calculating and thinking ahead, and even as he's playing the fool, he's taking the measure of things around him. To the point that when we get Varsh's death, on screen, it's not handled in the same way. In fact, the doctor comes through the door, looks down at the body, and says, Is he dead? Well, Varsh. And then he goes off. (laughs) God. Yeah, and it's a very Tom Baker kind of dismissal of, oh, well, another co-star gone. All right, let's get on with the plot. Whereas the way it's handled in Chapter 12, you've got Romana consoling Adric who's crying. Adric is so lost in grief that he hears the doctor saying something consoling, but can't hear the words because he's that far down in his own grief whereas on screen is he dead poor varsh adric is not crying romana isn't even there mm. she's not even in that scene and it's like holy shit why can't these books be written like this all the time i mean seriously my god but you're right there are there are problems but we'll talk about those shall we go to goodreads let's do it what All right, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.65, which is fairly high, actually. The reviews from our Goodreads group have, again, been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives this three and a half stars and says, I've never understood the sheer hatred shown to Adric. Irritation? Yes. Adric was a precocious teenager, played by a presumably equally precocious teenager. To some, including the 22-year-old me when Adric first appeared, precocious teenagers can be very irritating, but so what? It adds a realistic note to an unrealistic story. There's not much else I can think of to complain about with these episodes either. The production values are, for the time, superb, renewing and extending the promise of the start of the season, so much so that I didn't expect to enjoy this book, as it seemed there was little to add that hadn't already been seen on screen. In fact, there was more to add than we were allowed to get. Scriptwriter Andrew Smith gave us a prologue, always a welcome addition, and would also have given us an epilogue had producer John Nathan Turner not vetoed it. I'd love to know why. In fact, I'd like to know that too. I should probably uh, send a message to Andrew Smith on Twitter and ask him. Do we know what the content of it would have been? No, and I need to find that out, so I'll try to hunt that down. There is also more in this book than meets the eye, just like Transformers. Arachnophobes will probably hate the scene on TV where Ramana is attacked by spiders. I suspect they'll hate the prose version more, it's so well described. At the end of the story, the idea that Alzarius is a Gaia-type planet is much better defined in print than it was on screen, if it was there at all after the script editing. I don't think it was. 
Since Andrew Smith was novelizing his own script, it's likely he had the idea in mind at the beginning. The only thing I really didn't like was Smith's insistence on calling characters human. There are no humans in this story. Even before we found that the Alzarians were evolved marshmen, they weren't human. They just look like humans, which is always convenient for the casting director. There are no humans in the <laughs> Yes. Even the doctor is described thus, which is blasphemy. <laughs> that annoyance aside, I really enjoyed this book. 3.5 stars. Michael in our Goodreads group gives it four stars and says, Back in the day, my PBS station ran single episodes of Doctor Who weeknights and a complete story each Saturday evening. I vividly recall my parents going out the Saturday full circle was set to air and wanting to stay up and see some late night Who. I promptly fell asleep and woke up midway through episode three and wondered just what the heck was happening to Romana and who this Adric guy was. Thankfully, I had set the VCR so I could go back and fill in the gaps later. After seeing it, I took the plunge on Andrew Smith's adaptation and loved it, feeling it was one of the better Target novels of its era. Years later, I indulged in the audiobook, and I still feel like this is a solid entry, though this could be my memory cheating quite a bit. Smith takes a page from Terrence Sticks and doesn't stray far from his screenplay. He does, however, throw in a few elements of character development and backstory that I absolutely loved back then, and still do. Matthew Waterhouse does a nice job on the audiobook as well. Again, the memory cheats, but I can't help but love this one. And finally, Damon in our Goodreads group gives it three stars and says, I can imagine this is going to get a lot of stick, especially with the appearance of Adric, but born in 1974, this was the season that I started to watch when it aired. The season was born in 1974, Damon. So the memory cheats a little, but I remember the TV version and reading the novel. Reading it again for this group, it's okay especially when I remember it was being submitted by an 18-year-old. Same old Doctor Who cliche of running around corridors, but at least there's oxygen cylinders this time. I don't know quite what that means. Three out of five, although my heart says four. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? My heart says four as well, so I'm going to give it a four. (laughs) (laughs) And you know that your heart will go on. My heart will go on. I knew she was going to say that because I was about to say it myself. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoyed this book. I'm glad that we're getting an extension on Romana. I was fully expecting us to go back to Gallifrey and this was going to be her last story in the middle of a season but you know (laughs) so yeah I I just I really enjoyed it I think Andrew Smith did a fantastic job of kind of fleshing out this world that by your account is not as full on screen (laughs) so yeah four from me all right and Allison I'm gonna go three stars which is closer to four for those whose heart tell them for. Um, so, so I mean it quite positively. <laughs> I just have a grinchier heart yes. <laughs> than some others. I thought it was a very enjoyable ride, great atmospherics. My frustrations with the story were born of my being interested in the story. That makes sense. And I'm also going to give it a four because my heart says that I must. This is definitely just an astonishing book. In fact, I came close to giving it a 4.5 and then I thought, yeah, but that puts it up towards David Whitaker territory and James Goss territory. And it's close. 
it really is. Maybe I've even given it a 4.25 because the prose is just wonderful. Andrew Smith is an amazing writer, and I really wish that he would do some novelizations of his big Finnish stories just so we could have more prose from him, even though he has written other stuff, obviously. But this book's impressive. It's just a shame that the TV story isn't quite as impressive. I also especially like the way he writes Adric, and I wish other writers had done Adric as much justice as he does, because if he had, then maybe we'd like Adric more. I mean, I expected K-9 to be awful, and K-9 was fine. Yeah, Perfectly inoffensive. Well, I think you'll find the other will be happier. (laughs) I'm told Adric's going to be terrible, but maybe the experience on the page will be different than it is viewing the episodes. Well, as my dear departed father would say, anticipate in one hand, crap in the other, see which one gets full faster. <laughs> wow. I know. Uh-oh. What a saint he was, right? <laughs> very rich metaphor. Very, very rich metaphor. Rich in fiber, mostly. So, <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> God, what a place to end. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Good Lord. Next time... We continue with Tom Baker's last season and have an early Halloween episode as we look at Terrence Dick's novelization of State of Decay. One word, vampires. <laughs> In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with those spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordolic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.